0: Hi, I'm Harry Litman, host of the Talking Feds podcast, a weekly roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Most news commentary is delivered in 90-second soundbites that just scratch the surface of a new development, not Talking Feds. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Feds favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insiders view of what's going on in Washington and beyond. We dig deep, but keep it fun. Plus sidebars detailing important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities, such as Robert De Niro explaining whether the president can pardon himself, and Carol King explaining whether members of Congress can be disqualified from higher office, and music by Philip Glass. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking.
1: Michael Steele Podcast listeners, Michael Steele here with another quick take from the Michael Steele podcast. Check out what's going on right now. Welcome back, everybody. We are having a a really good conversation with Laura Coates. She is um the author. Why do you you sound
2: surprised? Hold on, Michael. Why do you sound surprised by that?
1: (laughs) No, no, that's that's, (laughs) okay, Madam (laughs) Prosecutor. I'm not, no, I I just, no, you know, sometimes I'm not surprised, but, you know, sometimes you don't know how conversations go because this is heavy stuff. It's, Mm. you know, it's, it's legal, it's law and it's justice system. And you talk about it with, with such fluidity and, and, and ease, and it's not It's not one where I have to go get my Black's Law Dictionary and start explaining (laughs) to the audience what they just heard. Um, And so that's that's and that's that's the book, folks. That's what I think you're going to walk away from the read feeling a you kind of gone through this journey with this with this woman and her career and the choices she had to make and the things that she's observed. And you have a little bit better understanding of how all these little pieces kind of come together. So forgive me if I sound surprised, I'm really (laughs) not surprised. And like I said, I watch you, I've I've watched your analysis on on CNN and and what you said before we went to break is very much what you do. You are very much here are the facts. This is not my opinion. This is what the law is. This is these are the facts in the matter that we're discussing. And this is how, you know, the judge could interpret it. The jury may see it, et cetera, et cetera. So you walk people through it. And, and I think that's good because a lot of times in this environment uh, where the big lie is the prevailing narrative that a significant portion of our population seem, is tending to buy into, it is refreshing to have someone just kind of put it out there on the street the way it is. And you there's no agenda. There's no bias it's this is what it is so that's that's what my tone was about
2: (laughs) it's giving you a hard time i
1: know i know but no it's no and it really you you've done a very good job um with with um the storytelling portion because a lot of times as we discussed at the very beginning these types of narratives and stories can be rather matter of fact and rather Pedantic and and all of that, and you kind of lose the person <laughs> in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I thought I thought that um, where I mean there were a number of them, but the one uh, that that stood out to me, uh, I think it's in the tenth chapter um, where you talk about the judge, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 the 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 woman who the young woman uh, who is um, uh, accusing uh, her. Her father, a man who's not her biological father, but someone who's played that male role in in her household with his with her mom, um, go through this trial uh, and how the judge viewed her, mm-hmm. um, and and tell us about that because it 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 really was an interesting way you you were almost as if you were a third party observer mm-hmm. in that, in that, in that chapter where I don't, I couldn't tell if you were shocked um, and, and you kind of caught yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of observing these things outside of, you know, the typical bounds or norms in which you would as a prosecutor or, or what. So walk us through this story and and how that, and how that shaped um, your view of, of the system.
2: Well, you know, it's it's that chapter, um, it, it's calling no one who has been raped would ever. And it was sort of a phrase of um, that I remember growing up and hearing about the accusations and victim blaming and what a woman would wear and how she would act. Even more generally, who is entitled to be thought of as a victim in general across the board, whether it's sexual assault or otherwise and sort of the expectations that people have of who's entitled to be a victim and what you would act like and when you would report it and what you would say and how you would feel and sort of the, the dramatics you think that are, that are happening, then you really actually see what in reality it looks like, what people's choices are, how they respond, that, that, that victimization has many different approaches and faces of victims and survivors. And um, one of the reasons you choose as a for, especially delayed reporting cases, which we hear a lot about in the news, right. Cosby case would be a prime example of delayed reporting. The Harvey Weinstein, um, Me Too discussions about the reasons for delayed reporting. You've seen the sort of the, the spectrum of people's reactions to it or oh, when did that really happen and the skepticism and right. the judgment. And so realizing that prosecutors oftentimes have the opportunity for delayed reporting cases to sometimes approach to just a bench trial, which we, you mean where it's not a jury, it's going to be a judge deciding the case, and you do it because you expect judges to sort of silence all that judgment and silence all the preconceived notions and just approach the case from what the facts actually right. demonstrate. Right. And this chapter, and of course, you also, we have this this stereotype that a woman would have an automatic level of sympathy and empathy for another Mm -hmm. woman's experience. And this chapter talks about what it was like watching a woman, a judge on a bench trial acting precisely how you would expect the worst of the jurors to behave.
1: Right. And that
2: that robe somehow did not. Um, you know, make, should not have made you assume that they were totally, not, not just on the up and up, but not what I mean, as if she was somehow complicit but in, in, or, 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 or um, you know, a criminal. I don't mean that. I mean that 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 did not guarantee impartiality. And so even at the level of a judge where we assume that that robe is going to, you know, prevent and block the bias that we mm-hmm. all bring in, It did not happen. And the experience of watching this young girl um, experience and be destroyed by that, what that felt like watching, was as much a part of the story of, you know, in an era we say, believe women and we champion that and people shout it from the mountaintops and it's a sword and a shield and everyone is supposedly on board with this notion. Again, who we are as a society on paper and Twitter, Versus what it looks like think, right. in real life in a courtroom.
1: So were so were there episodes like that, and and just how you saw the system, the the criminal justice system itself operating, functioning. Um, how you know defendants were pushed through it. Did that begin to feed or lead into the thinking um, the? the reasonings and thoughts you had around um, the criminal justice itself, where you would begin to question this system as a system. How, yes. What was that? What was that like? And what has that been like?
2: You no, know, I still question and I still wonder and reflect on that time of, in my life. And also, you know, there was always this, this dilemma I felt too, because it was, are you more useful as an agent of the system or a spectator of the system. Mm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know you yourself have probably wrestled with the idea of, am I more impactful as an incumbent or somebody who is commenting on it and using right. your experience and right.
1: insight J- just and, went through that.
2: I mean, you know, like, it's it's, it's, just, it's this it's this dilemma, and we and we probably have in other aspects of our lives. I mean, not just what you and I are doing specifically professionally, and so I wrestled with that, Michael. I wrestled yeah. with the idea of you know, am I am I sort of throwing in the towel and saying. You know what this is too hard it's difficult so i'm not going to do it and choosing the path of least resistance and and perceived luxury um and is that selfish of me to do to to acknowledge the dilemmas acknowledge the complications but just take it on the chin and keep going Mm -hmm. um and that was something that I, i i i i grappled with for me it was better for me it was more impactful in my mind and i hope in my practice to, to be from on the, to use the experiences that I had to now inform how people can view and hopefully change and shape the justice system, but also recognizing that, you know, we often, we talk about justice, but it's a system. I mean, it's not just one case. It's never going to be one verdict any more than our democracy is contingent on one legislative action. It's part of an entire system. And I, I think that people have to, in their own private moments and those wee small hours of the moment in the morning, decide whether your utility is better served within or without.
1: Did, did uh, Or does, being a mom play into that as well, particularly when you see young people trapped in this system, Um how, how do you find yourselves? I remember, uh, as Lieutenant Governor, uh, going to visit Eagle Street Academy, uh, in, um, in Baltimore city. And that's where they housed, um, 13 to 18 year old boys and girls Mm -hmm. and walking in there and, Looking, at, looking into the, the eyes and the faces of these young men and having two sons um, who at that time when I was in office were you know, 14 and nine, uh, 14 and, and 11. Um, and and I'm, I'm just sitting there, I'm just overwhelmed by the moment because it was almost, and I could really identify what, what Barack Obama had said about Trayvon Martin, you know, in, in that sense that, you know, that could have been me. Um, and certainly as a father with two boys, that could be my boys. And how, how would I feel? And it really put an urgency behind the work that I did in the criminal justice space. Um, in fact, it turned out, I found out later that I was really the first elected official to ever not just visit, but to come back. And every year I would go back and visit the the, the young men and women, um, you know, two, sometimes three times a year. Got into a big battle with um, with the with our GSA, General Services Administration, because I wanted to get used computers into because they had high school setup, into the Oh, well, you can't do that. Well, why can't I you're gonna throw the computers away. Why don't we let these kids have it? So that, 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 that dad thing took over, and how I began to look at the system. And then the lieutenant governor piece was there because I knew, at least in the office I held, I could do something or at least attempt to do something about it. You're in that similar situation um, where um, yeah, you're a prosecutor, but you're a mom. You're, yes, you, you're a prosecutor but you are uh, a citizen. And, and so you, you've already touched on a little bit of some of that conflict, but beyond the conflict, was it something that you felt made it a little bit easier or you could, the passion felt different? How, how did being the mom side of Laura Coates play into the prosecutor side of Laura Coates?
2: You know, I'm so glad that you shared that story because one, it helps I think everyone to get to know your heart even more, number one. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's so powerful because we have to stop. I mean, even though it's useful to compartmentalize, you didn't check yourself at the door. You brought yourself into the room and yes. into the room. You, you didn't just take a seat. You right. had a seat there and who you were. And I think that's important. And for me, you know, I, I wrote the book and some of these stories talk about the idea of, Um, I was pregnant at times. I had my babies back to back only about 18 months apart. And so I had my little stair step babies. (laughs) And um, but I remember thinking about and I wrote it from the idea of I wanted my children to know what I was carrying while I was carrying.
1: Wow. Wow. And I I
2: wanted them to understand that. And I think that as a mother, it changed really the way I approached cases. And I, I think I like so many people who have it drilled into their head that you're supposed to pretend that, you know, you're, you're not pregnant until you're like getting ready to give birth and right. it might make you look weak, et cetera. If you, if you, um, you know, you're emotional in some way. I think for me, be, when I became a mother, it, it like, it shattered constraints for me. I saw humanity from a very different lens. I thought about this could be my child whether it was the person who was victimized or the person who was on, who was the defendant. And in doing so and shaping it, I had to look at it from, you know, it, it elevated my level of humanity. And I, I wasn't somebody who, you know, was a Scrooge before and thought, but it's, but until you experience that moment of how it shatters it, how it changes everything. My father once said to me, I remember when I told him I was pregnant with my uh, first child, he was so excited and overwhelmed and happy. And he said, you know what, Laura, Um, being a mother will be like um, be prepared because being a mother from here out, you will have your heart live outside of your body. Mm, mm. Just you'll never know what that means until it happens. And I now I know what it's like to have my heart live outside of my body, Mm -hmm. but it also is able to see things without my own constraints, without the things that I'm shielding it from. And it allows me to think about things in a very different way. And so it helped, I thought, being a better prosecutor, ironically, but it also at times made me have to take that pause and just think to myself the approach. And sometimes I had to steal myself. Yeah. To have the resolve to, to walk in and, you know, be savage when I needed to be, but gentle when I could.
1: Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening today. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Heck, give us two five-star reviews. I love it. Or catch us on Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, or wherever you get that podcast thing on. You know how that goes. Peace out. Black representation in the media is so critical. I I can't imagine doing what I do today were it not for the towering figures like April Ryan, Eugene Robinson, and the late, great Gwen Ifill. And the next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you're going to find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: America, you asked for it. Or maybe you didn't, but either way, we have to talk. You're just in kind of a crazy place right now, Mr. and Mrs. USA. So, we are going to sit down a couple of times a week and work it out between us. The way Americans do. On a podcast. Hosted by Beowulf Rocklin. Weird name. Weird news. Weird politics weird country. Facepalm America. Listen to Facepalm America, a podcast that laughs at America and its politics from Beowulf Rocklin, producer of The Rick Unger Show. Facepalm America, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you download your digital distractions in audio form. I'm Dr. Andrew Jacobs, host of the Sports Psychology Hour. Is your New Year's resolution to become stronger, healthier, and more resilient? Then start with the Rewire Fitness Neuro Performance app. Rewire Fitness takes a holistic approach to achieving peak performance, letting you strengthen both your body and mind with Rewire's integrated resilience training system. Go to winnersunlimited.com slash Rewire. Click Learn More to sign up for your free 7-day trial of Rewire Fitness. no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details
0: we need to listen to people who disagree with us hey former congressman joe walsh here i have a podcast called white flag with joe walsh every week i sit down with people who do not think like me and we model how to have respectful conversations right with people we disagree with learn to understand we got to do this if we want to keep this democracy going Um, Listen to White Flag with Joe Walsh. It's a daily podcast, or weekly conversation, but you can catch a little something every day. Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to your podcast. White Flag with Joe Walsh. Check it out. Honest, uncomfortable conversations.